0: I just remember sitting there not knowing what to do and that hopeless feeling. You know, you always think that you're hiding it from your child, but you're you're not. (laughs) Kids are so smart. They know exactly what's going on. I'm watching women in recovery get their children back. I'm watching them get housed. I'm watching these powerful, very powerful testimonies. It's just amazing. The kids all play together and it's different groups. and ethnicities. Everybody was working and harmonizing as one. I was like, this is what God's plan was for us. You know, this is what he wants for us. Welcome
1: back to Creekside Conversations. I'm John Coster, and I'm with my partner here, Tim Anderson. And our third guest we have with us today is Kendra Kelly. little background before we get into the interview with Kendra. I met Kendra When I was volunteering at Seattle's Union Gospel Mission, Search and Rescue, which very quickly is an outreach program to unhoused people who are oftentimes in very difficult situations. And I met Kendra. She was a volunteer, still is, and got to hear her story. And I asked her if she would share her story of her encounter with Jesus, what life was like before and how God has been at work in
2: her life. So
0: welcome. Yeah, thank you. I'm super honored.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited, Kendra, to hear your story. I've heard a lot about the search and rescue groups from John, and I feel really honored to be able to hear your story. So thanks for coming and sharing it with us. Well,
0: thanks for letting me come and share it.
2: Yeah. So
1: Tell us a little bit about like where you're from, your background, and sort of what was life like growing up and the early parts of your life before meeting Jesus,
0: which was actually kind of recent. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Yeah. So I was born in Ohio, but I was raised in Washington, moved here when I was like three years old, but the youngest of four children, single mom who worked construction. So mom was never home and it was pretty much just us kids. If you want to laundry, you washed it. If you wanted to go to school, you went to school. It was just one of those things. My mom was there as a provider for us, but it was really hard for her to be there for us on an emotional level. Hmm. So it was pretty much just kind of fend for yourself. Being the youngest of four, you know, you have older brothers and sisters and you get fighting and they're different ages. My oldest brother and sister are about 10 years older than me. So they're in their teenage years. We're, you know, just young, you know, like Five, six, and so it was pretty much just you took care of yourself. But we didn't have God in the household. I mean, we there was a Bible that was sit on the dresser or whatever, but nobody ever really talked about God. We never went to church. But I always felt a new God. I just didn't know how to connect with him, and I I felt his presence there. And then as I got older, we moved into a house. My mom got a steady boyfriend. And I ended up meeting a neighbor kid that I had fallen in love with. And we ended up becoming high school sweethearts. And we were together for about 29 years and Mm. had a child together and, and was working and everything, but there was active addiction and drugs all throughout. I mean, my mom smoked marijuana freely around us kids. So it was the norm in our household. (laughs) It was the norm to see different drugs come and go. It was Mm -hmm. just very much a part of who we were and we considered normal. And then so when I seen normal families, I always was drawn to that and Mm. always wanted to be a part of the quote unquote normal family. You know, you didn't want to be the one that had this pot smoking going on at the house, the drugs, the partying and all that other things that kind of came along with that.
1: When you were growing up, how did you reconcile sort of the the narrative about public health and school and drugs and that sort of thing with what was normal in your house.
0: Mm-hmm. I'd watch shows on TV, mm-hmm. and that's what gave you the norm. You know, watch, you know, this is really going to age me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but we grew up with happy days and different strokes, and you have mm-hmm. all these different cues to gauge what was normal and what wasn't normal. And I just remember I wanted the June and Ward Cleaver. Mm -hmm. I wanted the normal household of the mom and the father. And it was never like that. Mm -hmm. And, and just always longed for those relationships with my brothers and sisters, because Mm -hmm. we were all kind of dispersed. We were all doing our own thing and like just surviving basically Mm -hmm. and taking care of ourselves that the family engagement, there wasn't any tradition, there wasn't any culture. And I longed for tradition and culture within the family and just longed for that family gathering. Thanksgivings and Christmases were different. People got drunk, and a fight happened, and you're waiting for something bad to happen. Those were the holidays. It just, it was a different upbringing. But I always had longed and wanted God to be a part of my life. I always felt Him, and I always would pray to Him, even though I didn't know what I was doing. But I had nothing to gauge from. I never went to church. I never got into the gospel. I had no platform or anything. I just kind of built my own relationship with God and I just always felt his presence.
1: Mm. Did Did you you have any friends who you got to be at their house and observe other people's?
0: Yeah. When I was in junior high, I I mean, I'd seen friends here and there, but we moved around a lot. So we would move like twice a year. So you were having to start over, start new friends, start new relationships. Boom, we'd move again. So you didn't really get the opportunity it was pretty much survival mode mm. a lot of that time and then when i moved in and we kind of stabilized when i was at probably in middle school is when i we moved next door to my boyfriend and i could see it. my bedroom window looked down into theirs and i got to see like the june and ward cleaver family mm. and i remember always longing and being like that's i just i want to be a part of that you know and it was funny because i prayed to god every night for like a year i was like i really like him I really love the family. God, please let me be a part of that stability. And, and then we started dating after that year. Mm. So it's funny how God works in mm. answering those prayers for you. Yeah. Mm. Mm. What What was his family like? His family, have you ever seen every Everybody Loves Raymond? Yeah. Yeah, it's Marie <laughs> and Frank. I mean, and then they used to joke about it too. No, they were right? like, they always used to call each other Marie and Frank. And she was the sweetest thing ever. She was a lot softer. She never treated me like... A stepdaughter or a daughter-in-law she always treated me like her kid Mm-mm. and I really just clung to her and her loving and her kindness and just everything that she encompassed she was one of the perfect women role models uh-uh. because she was just so loving and kind she was a doting mother mm-hmm. and I just really adored her mm-hmm. just really really adored her and her mm-hmm. husband yeah hmm So
2: the addictive stuff was just a part of your family, right? Mm -hmm. So it was just a normal where that thread started in your life, right? Mm
0: -hmm. So when I was a teenager, I was in um, almost high school. Adam and I started dating and my mom was heavily in addiction, heavily alcoholic. And she would get violent if I couldn't find drugs for her. And there was a point where I'd come home one day and I said, look, I, I went to school this morning. I went to work. I'm tired, I can't go find these things for you. And she got mad. And that was the point where I packed my bag and I went and moved in with him and his parents. And I finished high school with them because I knew that if I had stayed there that it was going to lead to her getting physical with me. And I didn't want to get physical with her. I just remember looking in her eyes and I was like, this is going to take a real bad turn and I don't want to do that with my mom. I mean, my mom, had a really sweetheart. She raised four kids all by herself. I mean, sure. she did what she had to do, sure. and we were always taken care of. So I don't ever want to degrade what she did because she was a loving mother. Yeah. But there was definitely addiction, and there was anger, and things that she had held over from other marriages and other things that had happened to her in her life. So I do want to pay her respect and and yeah. say that we always were fed, but there was times of struggle and there was times of addiction, when that's hard. For a child, I, at, at one point, I just remember God laying two paths in front of me, and I distinctly seen two paths. And he's like, look, if you stay on this path, you're going to crash and burn before you even get started, or you can finish high school. And, and I knew that if I had stayed with my mom, that I would have been in horrible addiction, and I would never have finished school. Mm-hmm. I would have ended up dropping out, and, and I went with Adam and just finished school and got my own apartment in my 20s. I ended up having my daughter and we were doing really good and thriving really well, but there was still always marijuana use. There was always addiction. He would drink periodically and we went through, we went through alcohol addiction. We went through pills and then there was cocaine habit, but we battled all of it together. Unfortunately, he fell and shattered his foot Mm. and he got addicted to pain medication, taking opiates and everything. And then one day I'm go down to go do laundry in my garage, and here he is on the floor, and there's a gentleman tapping a needle. And I was like, there's heroin. And I was just completely in shock and traumatized, and I didn't know if he was alive or dead. I had no clue that that was going on in my house. Sure. And I was just completely devastated. And this is 20, you know, 25 years into the relationship, you know, my family had become his family. My immediate family had moved and dispersed. My mom had moved to Florida. My brother was off doing his thing. My oldest sister lived in Florida. So I really didn't have anybody besides him and his family. I'd grew my whole life around him. Sure. And our friends were mutual friends. So, I mean, everything was so intermingled to walk away from it was like ripping yourself in two. And I had friends that came and said, aren't you going to leave him? You know, he's doing heroin. And I was like, I don't know how to separate myself. And I loved his family so much. We literally lived right across the street from marie and frank <laughs> you know mm-hmm. they lived right across the street from us wow. so it, it i was like i just remember sitting there not knowing what to do and that hopeless feeling coming over and just i kept just crying out and there was a, there was suicide attempts there was mm-hmm. all kinds of things just wanting to die because yeah. i didn't have the answers how how old was your daughter at the time uh let's see she was probably 13 14. wow yeah, yeah. so that so
2: a lot of the addictive challenges that you were facing as a couple, as a family, mm-hmm. you know, were pretty manageable then up until that point. Mm-hmm. And then...
0: Yeah, then it went into real hardcore mode. Yeah. And she was, I'd say, 13, 14 when she was started figuring things out. You know, you always think that you're hiding it from your child, but you're, you're not. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Kids are so smart. They know exactly what's going on. Sure. You think you may be clever. And at that point, it was just pot smoking. I was trying to keep like any there was any pills or anything like that I kept that away from her but the heroin was devastating then I started doing heroin afterwards because right after I found out he wanted me to inject him with the needle and I didn't know what I was doing and we would get in huge horrible fights and I would be like fine I guess I'll do you know because I loved him I didn't know how to leave him I didn't know what else to do and I was like I don't know what I'm doing and then he would scream at me if I wasn't doing it right. And I would cry and tremble. And then I got so depressed about everything that was going on. I was like, well, you know, pretty much threw in the towel. If you're going to be doing it and I'm going to be stuck in this situation, That I'm going to medicate, you know, and try mm, and mm. medicate myself and drown it out to where mm. I didn't have to well, try and feel anything.
1: Yeah. What were you doing for work at that time?
0: I worked for a hospital. I did medical billing. Okay. So that's
1: that's something you've done professionally. Yeah.
0: I've done professionally for years. I've always, I've always had a job. So I would be quote unquote functioning addict, but not functioning. You think that you're pulling the mask over everybody's eyes, but you're not, you know, everybody knows that something's not right, but I would still excel. I was getting employee of the month. So I would prosper and do really well. And then I would have setbacks and right before we became homeless, I could feel myself going down. I was like, I can't pull this off. I can't go to work all day, come home, party all night, go back to work. I was sometimes not getting any sleep for days on end mm. and thinking that I was pulling everything over and I just felt myself going down. The dark, dark place that you enter, mm. you know, and it's just, you're ashamed. I mean, when you're a child sitting there playing, you never think, well, when I grow up, this is what I want to do. No, that's not. My goal for when I got older was you're going to have a family and you're going to have these traditions and Christmases and pictures of this perfect life. And even if it's not perfect, something close. And this was tragically the wrong way. And you're just ashamed. You don't want to tell anybody that you're in addiction. You don't want to ask for help. You don't, Hmm. you just want to crawl into a hole and hide and, and nobody can pull you out of that besides God. So
2: would you say that you felt like surprised? Mm-hmm. by where you and Adam and your daughter ended up in that moment. I mean, oh, I was did mortified. It, and did it sneak up on you? Was yeah.
0: It- I mean, it did it because we'd smoke a joint here and there. So I'd been around this at all my life. But my goal was we were going to get a house and then Kaylee's going to graduate and we're then grandbabies. And you just think of the normal progression with your life. Mm-hmm. And Adam and I are going to grow old and die together. I mean, that's what, what the plan was. There, there was nothing other than that. And it just kept going wrong. When he shattered his foot, he quit working, and that was the end of that. So I was running the show. I was the one paying the rent, you know, doing everything around the house. And finally, I, I looked at him one day, and I said, I'm going under. I said, I can feel it. I'm having a nervous breakdown. I can't do this anymore. I'm too ashamed. I'm too tired, and I don't want this lifestyle anymore. But I didn't know how to fix it. So, so what happened with Adam? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so we became homeless. When we were out in the streets and our relationship turned very toxic. I mean, that's usually what comes hand in hand with hardcore drugs is you start resenting each other. You start playing off each other saying, well, I was going to go into treatment, but you weren't ready. And now you want to go into treatment and you sit there and you go back and forth and you start blaming each other. And it just got to a point where I knew I needed treatment and I knew that he wasn't ready to. And I just needed to sever that and go. It was, severing that relationship was so hard for me because yeah. that was my high school sweetheart. And when I split from him, it was literally like ripping myself in two, you know, because we, I mean, we would finish each other's sentences. We love the same music, everything. I mean, we were just interconnected. Mm-hmm. We were very much a part of each other. I just knew that I had to sever that. It had to break free and make that change. Mm-hmm. Where was Kaylee in all of this? Fortunately, her uh, wonderful grandparents lived right across the street when Kaylee found out that we were shooting heroin she left us a note on the counter it's the most devastating thing that i've ever had to experience to come home and there's this dear john letter from your daughter and oh she's my. moved across the street we were living in the house across the street so i could make her dinner i could watch her go to school so i wasn't separated from her until we actually became homeless and we lost her house, and then I couldn't keep track of her. I couldn't see her. I was in the homeless shelter, or living in my car, and that's when it really, really set in. Wow. Before then, it just didn't mentally kick in until I was completely cut off from her, mm. and then it sank in. It was like, nope, this is, this has got to change. Mm. Mm. So. Wow. Yeah.
2: Well, thank you for sharing that. And obviously, it's very—it's your life. Mm -hmm. Right, Mm -hmm. and it's personal. So, Mm -hmm. thank you. I'm sure it's a a lot of those things are burdens, you know. But also at the same time, I've heard that story (laughs) more times than I would care to admit. Right, about Mm -hmm. someone who goes to the hospital, Mm -hmm. they get pain medication, Mm -hmm. and then their doctor keeps on writing prescriptions Mm -hmm. because the pain is just too—it's unbearable—and then once that prescription finally s- stops being written, mm-hmm. then, you know, somebody looks for the next, the next pain management solution. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I also think about you sharing about um, like your job and managing being functional in that. Mm-hmm. And I am just hundred percent convinced that there are so many people out there who are, fighting the same fight that you were fighting Mm -hmm. someone is you know secretly battling an addiction so thank you for sharing that because real people need to be able to relate Mm -hmm. and to hear that there's hope and to hear that there's some encouragement that's really important
1: so becoming homeless you were renting a house Mm -hmm. obviously at some point you couldn't stay in your house was it financial or? It
0: was financial. I finally had a nervous breakdown and ended up losing my job. I oh, got laid wow. off from my job. Mm. I showed up late one too many times. Right. Yeah. No so, employee of the month award. No yet. employee of the month there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> lost that award. No. And I, it, it was really sad and devastating. Not only are you feeling this guilt from addiction, well, now you've lost your job. The shame of, of that. Yeah. The shame of losing your job because of it. And it was like, oh. And then, um, so logistically, what happened? You, you, I couldn't pay jump. my rent.
1: Right. So yeah. then, what? So did you leave Adam before that, or
0: no? We were still together at that point. It was just a train wreck. There was no co- real comprehension. It's just, what am I doing today? Mm-hmm. How am I going to stay from being sick today? Because mm-hmm. you're heavily into your heroin addiction, right? And if you don't have it, you're sick. So that's your first goal. And that's usually an all day mission is go and find it. Then, then you can dose and you can take a shower, you can eat, you can do those things without it. You can't function. Mm, And mm, so mm. I have to function in order to survive. Right. So you basically, you go in real primal survival mode. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious. Would
1: you have been open to an intervention by Adam's parents? Had they known and how to do that? Or, or,
2: or Kaylee or
1: Or Kaylee, anybody. Yeah. Yeah. You would have been? Yeah. I would have been.
0: I don't know that he would have been, and I think that was part of their problem—not knowing how to deal with two of us. Yeah, it's one thing when you're dealing with one person, but when you got a couple together, it makes the dynamic a lot harder to, you know, pin somebody down and say, "Hey, this is an intervention, and this is what's going to happen." So
2: it was his parents, right? right. right? So yeah, so he's probably the one they were thinking about first and mm-hmm. then, you know, and, and not that they wouldn't have helped you or anything, but just mm-hmm. that's kind of the natural order of things. Right. It's, right. that's right. really tough. Right. Yeah.
0: Well, and when all of this happened, I probably looked crazy cause I was going, gl- I was losing my mind at the time. Yeah. I was, I was really having a hard time with everything and it was so toxic at a certain point, all of a sudden there was a disconnect from the family mm. and it was like, you're on your own. We'll help him out, mm. but bye. You know, with me. And I was like, I didn't have any family. They had been my family. And that's when I would cry out to God. That's when I started asking, please, God, you know, I have no one. I don't have a penny in my pocket. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I have literally nobody to turn to. God was the only person that I had to turn to. Mm. And that's when I really started praying and asking God for help.
1: Did you have a circle of friends at all?
0: I did have a circle of friends, but they, for years, they had been begging me to leave him and asking me. And I was like, I just didn't know how to separate myself or leave Mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. And so they were tired of telling me he's bad for you tired of fighting or hearing me complain when they were like, well, right. you know, it's one of the old antiges get off the pot if you're, you right. know, and, and not want to be there. Yeah. And so they were sick of hearing it. You know, there. that's one thing that you'll see with couples that have been together for a long time and they're in their addiction. You know, one's always griping about the other of this, that, and you get tired and you shut off, yeah. you know, and that's basically, I had a good circle of friends, but they just shut down because for so many years they had wanted us to split up anyways. So at that point, by the time that I was ready to, everybody was gone. I didn't have anybody. So
1: you really were alone. I alone, was really alone, alone,
0: alone, alone, alone. alone. Yeah. yeah I, take was,
1: a, I take it Adam's
0: family. They didn't have any church in their life. His mom went, was, she went to church and, mm-hmm. and had strong faith, but not, you know, not really with the dad. And so it was like, she, the mom had faith. Her thing. Yeah. yeah her thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: But, yeah. And so... At a certain point you know your relationship with adam kind of Mm -hmm. fell apart then Mm -hmm. and then and Mm -hmm. you left him or well we both we
0: both ended up in the car living and and i that's when i went down and got a drug and alcohol assessment i knew as soon as i ended up in my car and i was homeless sitting in a parking lot i was like this isn't acceptable yeah this is not right this is not acceptable I deserve more than this. I'm ashamed. Mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you're in the Walmart parking lot sleeping and somebody shuts their door to go grocery shopping Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you're like, you know, you're sitting there and you're like, Oh, Hey, yeah. you know, like, How, how's your day going? I'm just waking up here. Yeah. You know, your hair's all smushed and up to the side. You just feel that sure. that, you know, people are looking at you all crazy and, you know, go get a job you bum and uh, just that horrid feeling that you just feel lesser of a human being. I'm an addict and I'm homeless. How the heck does this happen? Right. You know, it's one of those things. And just this horrible shame mm-hmm. and self-loathing mm-hmm. came over me. And I just was like, I, I knew I had to change something. You know, I was like, this is not acceptable for me. Yeah. It's just not.
2: So for, just for the sake of mm-hmm. the people listening to this, mm-hmm. who are maybe unfamiliar with what a day in the life of somebody living on the streets, like, what is that like? I appreciate your your perspective because you've lived on both sides of that.
0: Well, for me, before I received treatment, before I went to detox, it would be you roll out of bed and you've got to get a dose because you're you're going to get violently sick. You can't be on the streets and be vulnerable. You can't shed a tear, let alone be sickly walking around on the streets because you are hunted. You are stalked. You are watched. We had taxi drivers that would like stalk us from the the women's shelter. I mean, you'd be amazed at what comes creeping out to pick on vulnerable people, you know, and when you're in a vulnerable state like that, the first thing to do is, okay, I need to get up and I, I would leave the shelter, go get my dose. And then I was fine. You know, people encounter different things. People survive in different ways. I didn't know how to steal. I didn't know how to hustle. I didn't do those things. So, I mean, surviving was really hard (laughs) Mm. because you don't have a dime in your pocket. How are you supposed to get your drugs in order to stay well? So at that point, that's when I started leaning on Adam a lot at that time, just until I could get my bed date because I went down and did a drug assessment. I did my mental health evaluation. I reached out to Catholic Community Services, just trying to find any resource that I could to tell me where to go. I'm just thinking back to
1: Tim's question. Mm -hmm. You're this ordinary person Mm -hmm. with extraordinary circumstances, but you have a job Mm -hmm. and you're paying rent Mm -hmm. and you're feeding yourselves. And then one day you find yourself on the street Mm -hmm. with this addiction Mm -hmm. thing. How do you know where to even look for help?
0: I just picked up the phone and just dialed 411 and just started calling. And I was like, look, I've got an addiction what do I do? And then they referred me to the Department of Social Health Services, mm. went down there, and then I just started asking DSHS and looking on their billboards. And then when I went to Catholic Community Services, they said that they had safe parking because I still had my car at the time. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to try and find someplace safe that I could park that I wouldn't be attacked. And that's when I came in contact with Seattle Union Gospel Mission and their safe parking through their Kent Hope Day Shelter, day, uh. Women's and Day Shelter. So I went up there interviewed with one of the ladies that did the safe parking, um, filled out the paperwork. And I'd lived in Kent my whole life and never knew what Kent Hope was. And I never knew that this homeless shelter was sitting there until I became homeless. And so I went up and <clears throat> did the safe parking for a while. Then the car finally crapped out. And I had no place to go besides a shelter. So I, I knew Kent Hope from when I went and signed that safe parking. Mm-hmm. So I went back down to them. And said, "Look, I'd have no place to stay." And they said, "Well, we have we will bus the girls to a, a church at night to sleep, the day shelter, but we have a overnight. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you just have to sign up." So I signed up immediately. And but you were
1: still addicted. You,
0: I was still addicted. And you yeah. had
1: you were in no treatment program. I was
0: not yet. I was was still waiting for my bed date because I went down and took my drug assessment and everything, and I'd gotten connected with a drug counselor. And I was on state Medicaid that was helping me at the time, but it was wintertime and the, getting a bed date or getting into a detox facility mm-hmm. becomes a lot harder in the wintertime because it, the situation is uncomfortable out in the streets. More people will come to treatment and recognize that they mm-hmm. need help when the weather conditions are really bad outside. Mm-hmm. So it was like a two month wait before I could get into wow. any detox facility. And, okay. I, and I asked, should I get a, put on Suboxone? Should I get a, put on methadone? What should I do? How am I supposed to survive? I don't. I don't steal. I don't hustle. What do you want me to do? And they're like, just manage because people get addicted to these other ones. So for some people, it works. Some people, they just replace one addiction for another. So I had to rough it out for two months. And then I finally got into a detox facility. Mm-hmm. So, your, yeah.
2: so your day would be like you'd wake up and you'd get a dose or something and manage
0: and then... Mm-hmm. You would go back to the day shelter. Yeah, I would and, go back to the day shelter, and then
2: you would at night hop on the bus and mm-hmm. go to the
0: go to the church and sleep at the yeah. church at night to and, keep myself safe. And that was pretty much that was that was said, a routine that every was like day. Two months, or yeah, so. I did that for two months. Yeah, right. And right. I mean, a lot of
2: times the services that you hear about are mm-hmm. a pamphlet that somebody has in the back of your church, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But these programs mm-hmm. were life saving for you.
0: Oh, definitely. Definitely. Because well, I went in and I did a month long detox at a facility and I came out. And so now I'm sober. Still don't have a penny. Still don't have anybody. Now I'm sober on the streets. <laughs> I have nothing. And it's funny because, you know, as a kid, I always grew up in the same mentality. is like, oh, there's somebody that's homeless. Go get a job. You know, it's a lot different when you're out there. Cause and- and you, you know, that's how
1: people are looking at you.
0: Oh, I knew, yeah, I knew exactly yeah. what they were thinking. Cause be, I used to be the same person that was looking at them thinking the same thing, go get a job, you bum, you know, and it's not, and once you're out there and you realize, well, I got to take a shower and I've got to, I got to do laundry. And then I've got I can't drag all my stuff, my, my sleeping bag and all my clothing to work with me. You know, who's going to show up to a job and be like, Oh, don't mind my, my sleeping bag and my. My roly cart with my stuff and my hair's like half sticking up and I'm falling mm. asleep because there was fighting at the shelter all night last night and my stuff got all stolen from somebody at the shelter last night. Yeah. So I mean, it's not, it's not as easy. I tried doing temp work and I remember at one point I started falling asleep because I I had no bus money so I had to walk in the middle of the winter and walk a long, long ways and it was really cold get there, start working. And I remember I had to sit in this warm office and I could feel my eyes start closing. <laughs> and I was like, this is terrible. I'm totally sober, I'm gonna fall asleep on the job. But you were they,
2: like, thank God it's warm. Thank God, yeah, it's I was like, like oh, I was nice, defrosting. I was like, yeah. it's nice and
0: warm in yeah. here. And then all of a sudden my you know, eyes started closing and so I needed a stable home in order to be able to work and function like I needed to and, mm-hmm. and produce good work and be a good employee. And that's when one of the, one of the ladies at Kent Hope had mentioned they had a year long recovery program and they had where they would help you with housing, but it not only helped, it encompassed the whole body and spirit. So it was, it's a faith-based organization and I always believed in God and I always felt God and I always spoke to God and and felt him, but organization that's faith-based and you have to walk in and you have to surrender everything you're under their rules and you have to just trust in God's plan is a different thing so doing that and surrendering was really hard but at the same token it was like you know like i I was telling you before i had tried my plan and i crashed and burned so i was open (laughs) to god's plan i was like you know what i don't you don't hear of too many people that followed god that crashed and burned i mean you really don't you know i've heard a lot of people taking their own roots and crashing and burning but i have not met too many people that followed god and crashed and burned Hmm. so let's do this We'll be right back after this short break.
2: So what changed after that? What did it feel like when you got sober?
0: When I got sober, I was just elated. It was like a new beginning. Definitely. I knew that God had wanted something different for me. He wanted good for my life. He wanted me to do good. And he wanted me to, in all my shame, to use my voice. And if I can help one person, let them know Mm -hmm. that God loves all of us, Mm -hmm. that he wants happiness and love in your life, you know? So if... I can tell somebody my testimony and it helps just one person, then it's worth all of it. So, the sobriety was that
2: really big step. Yeah. And just kind of gave you, you were so homeless, Mm -hmm. but you were sober now. Yeah. Did that give you some strength or some hope? That, something that was gave going me to strength change.
0: and hope, but there was a level of desperation before I went into that year-long program mm-hmm. because I still had no answers of how I was going to fix the damage. Mm. You know, I'm still in this mess. I, I'm still homeless. Right. I've still, you know, got to rebuild those relationships. I hadn't went through any counseling. I hadn't done any courses on drug abuse. And there was just, there's a whole bunch of things that needed to be incorporated in being healed otherwise you'll relapse because you just feel all that shame and that pain again mm-hmm.
1: yeah how long was it from the time that you finished detox till the time you got into the program it was like two to three months okay yeah and how did you survive during that time
0: i just kept my nose down and just i would stay at the day shelter i would go to the church at night mm-hmm. and i just kept doing that and i was like just keep your head down some i'd I didn't know what was gonna happen, but I knew that if I stayed out in the streets, I'd run into somebody that I knew and I knew that I would be distracted. And I knew that the only place that I could stay safe and keep myself on target was staying at the day shelter and staying around people that were sober and, and just connecting that way with, mm-hmm. with God and, and with these people, these new wonderful people that were introduced to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: Tell me a little bit about your spiritual journey as you got into that program, developing, understanding who God is, what what was that journey like for
0: you? It's it's really funny because, like I said, I hadn't went to church or anything. And, and during this whole process, when I was staying at the day center and going to the church at night, right before I went into the year-long program, I kept hearing God and he'd say different things. Like one thing that he would say is, Kendra, stop and smell the roses. Then it was like, stop, breathe, sit with me in peace and rest And that's what I kept getting from it. Mm. And it was really, it was kind of funny because I would literally stop and smell the roses wherever I seen roses. And I was at the day shelter one day and a lady came up to me, a a pastor, and she had all these long stemmed roses and and she just charged us right up to me. She goes, I prayed to God and he told me that I was supposed to bring you roses. And I just started sobbing and I was like, I couldn't believe it. And I was like, that's really amazing. So my friend had a car and she grabbed one of the long stem roses and she had put it in her visor in her car. And we went out to smoke her dog. Angel, the dog grabs the the rose out of the visor, goes into the back of the car and sticks it in the side pocket oh my of my bag that said, God loves us. And, and the
1: who says there's no angels.
0: I know. That's what I was saying. So I, I went to grab it. She's like, where's the rose? Like, I don't know. And I'm looking through my bag and I realize what's going on. And the little dog's sitting there shaking its tail at me and I'm pull this rose out and I just start sobbing. And I tell this story when I'm at Hope Place to the girls, and they were all just sitting there kind of amazed at God and everything. And so we go to an N.A. meeting that night, and the guy oh, sorry, had— So what's N.A.? So N.A. is Narcotics Anonymous, and we we walk into the meeting, and we all sit down, and one of the gentlemen bought long stem roses for all the ladies there and handed them all out. And all the women just—all their mouths dropped open, and they turned and looked at me, and we all got watery eyes, and I said— I told you, God's real. God is real. He's alive. He's never left us. He's Mm. here. He's with us. Mm. And all of us girls start crying. They're like, I can't believe you told that story in class today. And this just happened. Okay. So
2: you make it through the Mm. one year program. Mm -hmm. And what were some of the skills processes that you had to do over that year?
0: So they teach you about substance abuse, what are triggers and things that you can do to help avoid that. We went through a a lot of courses about domestic violence, codependency, you know, because I definitely was codependent with Adam and trying to be on your own and there's self-care that you need to do. There's all different things that are incorporated in recovery and doing things for yourself so you can help other people. Mm. And there was also Bible study. And so I got to dive into the Bible and learn about Jesus. And, and this was something that I really wanted to do because I had been hearing him and I'd been feeling him. And there were so many times I would just break down and cry because you could feel his presence there. You could feel his hand. I'm watching women in recovery, get their children back. I'm watching them get housed. I'm watching these very powerful testimonies. I mean, my testimony is, is just Nick and all of the glory and wonder that he's worked and how he transforms and, and rebuilds people. And just watching it is just amazing. And then being down in the kitchen and watching the kids all play together in different groups and ethnicities, but everybody was working and harmonizing as one. And I would get overwhelmed. I was like, this is what God's plan was for us. You know, this is what he wants for us. And mm-hmm. I could feel it. Mm-hmm. And it was just truly amazing because I felt like I was in God's house. You know? Wow.
2: So yeah. So you have this really powerful experience. And then at the end of the year, they said that they would help you with housing. So what happened then?
0: So you get a life coach and they help you because I was like, how am I going to explain a couple year gap in my resume?" (laughs) So the life coach walks us through on how you can do different things. So they had legal teams to help with anybody that had criminal records. Fortunately, I didn't have a criminal record and I still had my career. So I just made up a resume and started applying for jobs and got a job with a temp agency right away. And then they had a transitional house that you could move into, and you paid like a third of your income, and then you could save your income so that way you could get back on your feet and you were allowed to stay for two years. And I stayed for a little over a year, and then I was able to get back into my own apartment. I started volunteering and going out and serving the homeless because that's where my heart was like, I need to give back and do what they did for me and show other people love like they had shown me when I was living in my car. I've been doing that ever since, mm. since 2018. Because when I lived in my car, Seattle Union Gospel Mission come out and they would serve sandwiches and cocoa and, and just show people love at their level and, and minister to God's children because we're all God's children. You know, We all deserve love. We all deserve respect. You don't know the demons that somebody's fighting and you just have to be loving and respectful to people people respond to love Mm -hmm. and respect. Mm -hmm. They don't respond to somebody shouting and being mean and hateful. That's not, that's not how you fix things. Mm -hmm. And I started doing that. And I've been doing volunteer work with the Seattle Union Gospel Mission Mm -hmm. ever since. And, and then it worked into a permanent job for me doing outreach and community engagement and housing the homeless now. So it's, it's been pretty awesome.
1: What surprised you? in your sort of spiritual formation as you begin to find out who Jesus is through your Bible study and, and, and whatnot?
0: The, uh, his love and his grace for us and forgiveness in our sins and, and just having faith in us when he's asked for s- such a small bit of faith in him. Mm. And it's just amazes me. It blows my mind, his faith and his love and his dedication for us. It is really beyond our comprehension. We can't even fathom his love and his grace for us. You know, when I think of my daughter, I would still love her, mm. you know, no matter what. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's his love for us as a fatherly love. You know, mm. God, God doesn't want, comfort all the time in our life it's mm. growth mm. you know that god wants for us he wants us to learn and grow mm. so sometimes your situation may be uncomfortable sometimes it's supposed to be uncomfortable you know because it's supposed to make you grow mm. and so that was one thing that um i learned and just just how much he loves us and and feeling his spirit and you know talking to him and praying to him and then i uh, had a relapse and and he told me that he never stopped loving me, that yeah, he would always love me mm. and that he didn't give up on me, that I gave up on myself and that I needed to let that go, mm. you know, and I, it just, it really struck me. And I was like, wow, yeah, Okay, the devil will try and keep you in your sin and make you feel like God's not going to love you. That's just a lie from the enemy, mm. you know? So mm-hmm. I, it just, yeah. you know, how many lies the enemy will throw at you to keep you from God, mm. Is another one that mm-hmm. I really learned that, you know, he's definitely there to deter you from from feeling God's love and grace.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you finished the program mm-hmm. and you got into your own apartment. Mm-hmm. So what has your life been like? Since
0: since then, yeah, it's been wonderful. It's it you know I have a a normal relationship with my daughter. We go out all the time, get our you know manies and petties, and we'll go out to lunch. And you know she's a huge part of my life, mm-hmm. and she I think she was a big part of my moral compass too because I was always wanting to not disappoint her, and I mm-hmm. always you know wanted her in my life, and I knew that that was jeopardized by my actions, and mm-hmm. so. I wanted to make sure that I took those steps.
1: What role did she play? She obviously knew you were homeless, right? Mm -hmm. And she knew about your addictions. Mm -hmm. Um, What was the dynamics
0: of that relationship during that time and then afterwards? So her and I got along really well. She just didn't like seeing her father and I fight and that it had gotten so toxic. It was really hard for her. She would, you know, she loved her mother very much and she loved her father very much. Um, that was one thing in our addiction. Adam and I always, um, we were always at her basketball games. We always went to all of her events. So she very much had the presence of her father and very much of her mother. And so it was hard for her because she was being torn between the two of us when we would fight and whoever mm-hmm. was winning you know, she would always go with the loser and defend the loser, you know, (laughs) so I feel really bad for that. But I'm glad that, you know, she knows how to smell somebody's, you know, darker side, she knows Mm. she instantly will be like, Nope, you're full of beans. So I mean, that is a good thing. But um, we've, we have a really good relationship. And I love her so much. And she's just been a true blessing. She was definitely a gift from God. I mean, really, because mm-hmm. there's there was many times that I was in some dark places, you know, and it was like, okay, I've got her and I've got God. Okay, we can do this. I've got those foundations and I can keep building off of those. So, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Has she um, had any encounter with God?
0: No, I keep trying to talk to her about my story, but I'm doing it softly and gently because I don't want to push her away. Mm-hmm. I don't like talking to her too much about it because I don't want to rehash right. some of that right. stuff, you know, that may be traumatizing for mm-hmm.
2: her. You've got your apartment uh-huh. and you've been working like uh-huh. since then?
0: Yeah, like... I've been working solid the whole time. And then it's funny because I was volunteering with Seattle Union Gospel Mission doing the outreach, you know, going out and serving the homeless and we would serve them sandwiches and stuff. And Um, I was praying to God and asking God, you know, I want to do your ministry. I want to serve. And I know that I have love and compassion for your children and that's what they need. But how, how can I do this and pay my rent? (laughs) So it was funny. It's a huge detail. I was like, Lord, yeah, Yeah. I can't, I've got to be able to be (laughs) progressing and still doing good, you know, but at the same token, I want to serve your children. And I want, I know this is a good ministry and I want to do good works. Like you, you want us to. And I had a friend who started working at Salvation Army and was looking for a partner to do outreach and engagement. And so now I'm I transitioned over to Salvation Army, and we are now housing the homeless um, through Salvation Army with their street level program. And um, you know, last year they housed over 600 homeless people. Um, wow. So that is the new the new goal is to get people into their homes and get you know, stabilized and and it's been a wonderful journey. But in retrospect to look back and watch how God's plan has worked is just I mean, amazing to me. It's just I'm I sit back all the time and I'm so grateful and humbled by everything. Every mistake and every victory is is all part of the plan, you know. And it's really neat to be a part of it, you know.
2: Mm-hmm. What do you think now as you encounter people Mm -hmm. that are in the situation that you were in Mm -hmm. uh, how do you how do you engage those people on the street like what kind Mm -hmm. of what goes through your mind as you're talking with them and
0: Well, you know, each individual is different and every situation is different. There's not a one-stop shop or fix for that. Everybody's got different damage. You really have to kind of just go up and engage with the person and see where they're at and see, do they want recovery? Or do they think that they can manage it on their own and they just need a stable housing to get that ground level back up and get them back into society again, mm-hmm. but we do have resources for recovery. Mm-hmm. We do have resources for abuse if they've been, you know, emotionally, physically abused. A lot of the time, they go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, you know, mental health. You have to you have to heal the person as a whole. You know, it's sometimes it takes for one it may work, and the other one it's going to take a lot more work and a lot more time. Mm-hmm. You just have to engage that person. Sometimes it takes repeat times over and over and over again. They want to see consistency. They want to see love. If they've been burned or abused so badly, you have to build their trust. So mm-hmm. there's not one answer. That's I wish I had right. that answer and dealing with that, I get it. I don't condone people camping everywhere. I understand those concerns from our community, mm-hmm. um, but I also want to plead to the community to use some compassion and some love, you know, when you're encountering different people. Cautious, <laughs> yes, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. But please use some compassion and realize that people have been severely damaged. Somebody's have severely abused them. They've been through severe trauma, mm-hmm. whatever that may be. You know, you just don't chalk it up to they're a bum drug addict, loser, and they're not worth it. We're all God's children. God wants every one of us to come home. Yeah. You know? Mm. You
2: mentioned earlier that there are people who are taking advantage of vulnerable mm. populations. Right? right. And you right. were, you said you'd be surprised at what creeps out. Mm-hmm. Can you explain just a little bit more, like, just what that's like and kind of the, the dangers that people
0: who are living on the street might face. Face, yeah. Well, when I uh, stayed at the day shelter, there was a taxi driver that used to stalk the women that lived there. And he would give you a free ride if you would do certain things for him, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, you'd be walking along and you'd be like, go away. And he'd just be lingering behind you in this taxi cab. And you're like, OK, is this guy going to jump out and see a serial murderer? He would literally wait. And all the girls at the shelter, we all knew who he was and we would all keep an eye on him. I was like, Hey, do you guys see the cabbie? Hey, don't take a ride from him, because at the end of the ride, it's Mm. gonna be bad news. And so, and then there was like smoke shops and different places that would, Hey, I'll trade you for your debit card for this or that, and you didn't know who would turn you in. So then you would get a charge on top of it, or you have to go to jail. Mm -hmm. So this stuff happens. I would watch vulnerable get set up, get thrown in jail. And this other person just walk off. So there's all different dynamics and things that happen. So please show people love and, and consideration.
2: Is Do you have any advice for the people who are supporting people struggling with addiction or homelessness? How can you encourage those mm-hmm. t- who are supporting people struggling with addiction or
0: homelessness to mm-hmm. stay in the fight? Mm-hmm. It's because you're worth it. I mean, you're think about it as a human being, you're worth having a normal family and a job and your friends and your relatives and a beautiful community that will surround you. And, and just, you know, being part of community was, is a huge thing. And I I believe that that's what we're all meant to do is we're all meant to love on it, whether it's time, money, um, anything that we can do to help give back and it, it feeds your soul. It really does. I mean, that's what God wants for us, and it is fulfillment. It's not about chasing the bag. It's about fulfillment. Just try it for a while and see how much it fills you better than those drugs or alcohol. Mm. Um, it's the best uh, natural high that you'll ever get. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's yeah. a true fulfillment and it becomes addictive. So it's not addictive in the negative sense, though. Not right? in the yeah, not in the negative sense. No, <laughs> no, it's, like no. A, it's just it's... it's just something that it's within ah. your soul. You know, you feel that connection between you and. And the Holy Spirit and God. I mean, you really do. You, yeah. I mean, it. you just feel this connection, you know?
2: I would assume a part of that is just because you're seeing people be not only reconciled to God, mm-hmm. but reconciled back into community, right? So, like, you now are spending time with your daughter mm-hmm. doing, you know, many petties and yeah. getting lunch. And I'm getting a tax meals. paying
0: citizen. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you get, yeah, you're back. You're a part yeah, of I'm
0: a part of a functioning society. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which is yes. really
2: important. And there was a time where it, we talked about earlier where you were kind of like, it was like an out of body experience where you're looking at yourself going, I can't believe this is what my life is like now. Right. And now you're back, kind of on the other side of that, yeah, right. And that's absolutely something to celebrate. And mm-hmm. um, so, I was going to ask you about your mom.
0: Mm-hmm. My mom had addictions. Um, she she moved to Florida. She had became homeless in her addiction and everything. And mm-hmm. we um, a long time ago had she went and moved to Florida to stay with my oldest sister. Okay. Um, she now has found God, and she is a recovering addict, and she's been clean and sober. For I'm not sure how many years she has now, but she is clean and sober and goes to church all the time. And her and I text each other every morning and tell mm. each other how much we love each other mm. and stuff. But mm. God's been a huge part of her recovery. And, you know, in our relationship, is it's become a, you know, we've been talking about God and how God's transformed each one of us. And mm-hmm. and um, ministering to each other about our experiences and trying to share that with our my other two sisters and, you know, just... Just planting seeds and letting God do His work, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's it's quicker for others, and sometimes it takes a long time. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. just planting those seeds. Yeah, yeah. What is what is the Lord speaking to you about now? Huh? I, I just excitement. So excited about going and serving and housing homeless right uh-huh. now, uh-huh. and learning all the different, um, you know, resources and just becoming a beacon and and being able to help direct people in put, you know, where they need to go, if they need help, helping those that don't know how to help themselves. Right. Yeah. Right. And finding those resources. So being that resource for, for many people and, and going out and finding the one, you know, that's what we're yeah. meant to do. Yeah. So, yeah. Even, even just one, just one,
2: just one. yeah. just yeah. one. Cause you're one. Yeah, Let's that's say. right. So Kendra, one of my favorite things that you shared was just about how important it is to go out and and find people, right, and and help people out of their struggle. Mm-hmm. Something you really um, just described so well was the fight for survival mm-hmm. that you were fighting mm-hmm. um, when you were on the streets. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's one level. But from what it sounds like, the kind of that next level after just surviving is being restored, mm-hmm. right? Right a lot of the reconciliation between you and your mom, between you and your daughter, between, mm-hmm. you, know, um, you know, you know, and the mm-hmm. U.S. government paying, yeah. Taxes. paying taxes, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> being a contributing member of society. Right. And there is that sense that you've been restored now to a different place after that long battle. Mm-hmm. And um, we've had conversations in the past on this podcast with people about the opportunity that God gives people not only are you saved from addiction or saved from homelessness, but you're saved for something, mm-hmm. right? You're, God is giving you this opportunity to partner with him to bring other people back in mm-hmm. and experience the same kind of transformation and restoration that you've experienced. And that's what I find so deeply encouraging mm-hmm. and so in line with what God is doing in the church mm-hmm. in so many different ways. People are God is calling people back to him. So thank you so much for sharing this story with us. It's encouraging. I'm
1: going to put a shameless plug (laughs) into what Kendra had just said. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and I don't know if I said this beginning, I'll say it again anyway. One of the things that, you know, I was following what I think was an obedience to a calling that God had for me to go out and serve in this way. And while it's been very profound, and continues to be profound. Kendra's experience allowed me to see compassion and love modeled in a way that I could never learn about in a book, that yeah. I could never hear about in a sermon, right. that I could never know about by just talking about it. Right? You had to go out in the street and watch it. And what Kendra was doing, and she didn't even know this, she was exhibiting compassion and love in a way that was modeled that I could go, oh, that's how you do it, you know? Yeah. And I've been changed. So going out and doing this stuff changes you.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: it changes you. It changes it from the concept of compassion to embodied compassion, mm-hmm. and I, I I don't know another way to say that. So yeah. thank you so much.
0: I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. God bless. God bless you.